Hi everyone, my name is Maddie and I am a second year medical student. This project consists of many interviews with various physicians and patients regarding health equity topics and how to be a compassionate healthcare provider to diverse and marginalized groups. We hope you enjoy. Okay, so hello everyone. I am here with Dr. Robin Dickinson. She is a family medicine physician who has a solo micro practice caring for the uninsured, underinsured, and Medicaid patients around her community for seven years. Uh, she has experience caring for people with trauma and people who are neurodivergent, and she is now a professor and has a pre-med educational program to promote diversity in the medical education pipeline. Okay, so first, if you could explain to us what it means to be neurodivergent and how that manifests in your clinical experience with your patients. Sure, so I mean, we all know diversity is good and important in lots of different ways. All of us in this room are diverse in various ways. Um, but one thing we often don't think about is that our brain wiring is also diverse. And just like we need that diversity in other ways because it wouldn't you'd help society or human survival or anything if we were all the same, we also need different brain wirings. And so neurodiversity recognizes that there's the neurotypical brain wiring, but just because it's the most typical doesn't mean it's right. And that when people are neurodivergent, that means they have brain wiring that's different from the typical. And there are some challenges that can come with it, but a large number of those challenges are simply because the world is set up for people who are neurotypical. So when I'm working with kids, what I always say is, have you ever been in a place where all the chairs were the size for grown-ups? And they're like, yes. And you know, do your feet touch the ground? No. And I'm like, well, my father-in-law, my, my husband's dad is six foot eight. And so when he sits in those chairs, he looks like he's sitting on a little kid chair with his knees all bent up. So we have this one size of chairs for everybody, but it's too big for you guys, and it's too small for my husband's dad. It just fits the people who are exactly the same height as each other within a few inches. So the problem isn't that you're too short or that my husband's dad is too tall, it's that the chairs are all the same. And what we need is we need chairs that fit everyone. And you know that's kind of how neurodiversity works too, is that, I mean, there are some inherent problems to being very tall, you know, he has a lot more back problems and things like that, um, gravity, that stuff. But, you know, there's also a lot of problems that are just there because the world isn't set up for people of different heights. And in the same way, for people who are neurodivergent, there are some things that are inherently challenging, but there are a lot of things that don't have to be, it's just because society has set up the world to work for the neurotypical people and not for anybody else. So um, some examples of neurodiversity include anything from autism, ADHD, Tourette syndrome, OC, or uh, dyslexia, dysgraphia, um, all the other disses with learning disabilities, um, and then also interesting things like synesthesia. So basically all these different ways that people's brains can be wired that mean that they experience the world and, um, and interact with the world in a different way remember is that these the names are all kind of like labels we've given to kind of groupings of diversity but really it's kind of like saying people are black or white mm -hmm. my assumption is that in a hundred years it's going to sound just as silly as a hundred years ago or they used to talk about like Italian Americans were a certain way and Irish Americans were a certain way and there were all these stereotypes and now you can't like what are you guys or you know right. what's your ethnicity mm -hmm. are you Irish are you Italian um, and nowadays it's just like yeah everyone's white, who's white, right? Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that in another 100 years, we're not going to be saying people are black or white, or I mean like everyone's like somewhere in between, right? You know, in my patient population, ADHD was more common because ADHD is more common. 
but um, autism is extremely underdiagnosed. It's 2% of everyone, not just children, adults too. But the, most of the adults are not diagnosed. Instead, they're labeled, which is a huge problem because then they have all these struggles and then react in a typically autistic way because that's how they're wired, right? But then because they're not fitting into what's expected, now they're labeled as being troublemakers or being lazy or you know all the different things, you know, coping strategies they come up with over time and how it's perceived by someone else. When you're treating a patient who you've identified or self-identifies as neurodivergent, how does that alter your approach and your patient care style as you're treating them? First of all, a lot of people came to me not identified. Mm -hmm. um, I was, I just had a reputation in my community for like, I'm, I don't act like a doctor. That was like, I was like, you know, I came to see you because my friend says you don't act like a doctor. And I was, I was like, so what does that mean? And they're like, uh, well, you know, like you're really nice and you're understanding. And I'm like, boy, doctors have a bad reputation. But there's a reason for it, right? Like most of my patients had been fired from at least one previous practice. Um, and because of non-compliance or because of a trauma reaction or because of you know various other things. And so I you know, was kind of the island of misfit toys. And so when I first met them, a lot of them just thought they were bad or wrong or lazy or messed up or whatever. And at the same time, were usually either sad or angry or ashamed or some mix of negative feelings because of that, right? Um, and so for a lot of people, part of it was saying like, hey, you know, I, I notice these things going on, and sometimes it's because people are different from each other. And, you know, and so I told tons of stories about my family. And usually over time, people are like, that sounds kind of like me. And I'm like, no kidding, because I was kind of angling it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so part of it is like, how do you tell someone, like, hey, I think you're autistic, when they have a negative preconception of what autism means? Or, hey, that sounds an awful lot like ADHD when they think that someone with ADHD is like a screw-off or that's a made-up term or, you know, they just are trying to drug you up or, you know, things like that. How do you make that, how do you have that conversation? Mm -hmm. um, so that's always the first step for me is how do you, how do I introduce that as something that's positive? And part of it's just I got really good at telling stories about my family and making it sound very positive because there are a lot of really wonderful things about being neurodivergent. But of course, when people haven't been identified and don't have the support, they're experiencing all the bad things, right? Mm -hmm. And so helping them make that transition across. Um, the other thing is just adjusting how I work with people. So someone who has ADHD, probably gonna be late, probably gonna forget to come to their appointments, probably gonna forget to take their meds. It's not their fault, right? It's their brain isn't wired to do that boring kind of stuff. They, they're really good at other stuff. That doesn't happen to one of them. So I would sit down next to them and help them set calendar alarms on their phone to remind them an hour before the appointment with me that they needed to come to their appointment. And then guess what? They come to their appointment. Um, so helping them problem solve in a way that works for them. And for someone with autism, being very literal, not using a lot of figures of speech, and then just also being very patient. Because oftentimes someone with autism comes off as being rude or condescending or um, know-it-all, but that's just because of how their brain is wired. And so, you know, a lot of my more obviously autistic patients who had never been identified um, were fired from previous practices for just being having a bad attitude or talking back to people or getting angry. But, you know, I know how that worked. You know, they were liberal and they were blunt and then someone got mad and started being awful to them and so then they got mad, right? And then, and right, rightly so, from their perspective and unrightly so from someone else's perspective. When in reality, if someone had just taken the time to be understanding, that would have never happened. 
And so just being very literal and not taking offense and helping them kind of be able to understand my perspective, but in a very literal way, instead of being like, why don't you understand my perspective? But instead saying like, oh, I can see that this, you know, and if you were in this situation, you would want this. And now I see that we are in this situation, so what do you think about this? And just being very step-by-step. But again, I grew up, like my siblings have autism, I have older relatives with autism, my kids have autism, I'm like one of the most boringly neurotypical people in my family. (laughs) Um, And so it's natural for me to kind of go back and forth. Yeah. I don't know who first said it, but like in my family, what people say is I'm bilingual, that I speak autism and I speak neurotypical. (laughs) And so it is something you have to practice, but you can get pretty good at. One kind of extra question I want to ask, what kind of resources do you use in your practice for those patient populations? Boy, when you talk resources, (laughs) like there's so many. I mean, the number one for ADHD, and actually I recommend a lot for autism um, as well, is a YouTube channel called How to ADHD. Um, She's awesome. She makes it interesting and fast and easy to learn a whole lot of details about ADHD. It's very accepting and has created really a community for people online where they can feel accepted and normal and also learn strategies. Um, So that's really helpful. It's I found it helpful for everyone from people living with it, but also like parents are like, oh no, I'm sure my kid doesn't have that or, you know, Mm -hmm. that's one of the important resources. Really, it's the helping people with the identifying with it in a positive way. Um, for my son who has Tourette's, actually both my kids do, but my daughter's is mild enough you don't really notice. My son's is a lot more noticeable. There's um, quite a few videos online about um, that that's, are called um, I Have Tourette's But It Doesn't Have Me. I don't like the setup because it is more negative, um, but it does mean he got to see videos of tons of other kids with Tourette's, and people just post them under that name. Um, there's also a really good YouTube channel called Kids Meet, or Hi-Ho Kids is the YouTube channel. So Hi-Ho Kids, and they do Kids Meet videos. And they have Kids Meet someone with Tourette's. But they also have Kids Meet like anyone and everything. So it's something I recommend a lot to people, whether it's children or adults, because it exposes you to people that you might not otherwise be exposed to. And the kids ask them the kind of questions you might want to ask, but you maybe have those barriers that like that wouldn't be polite. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get to kind of find out more without feeling like you're staring at somebody or whatever. Once people understand, usually there's a huge change in behavior, right? Um, in my, when I teach live classes with kids um, uh, for, for my pre-pre-med stuff, um, one of the topics I cover is neurodiversity, and I'll show a video that's kind of a simulation of what sensory overload looks like, and every time you see the kid's face is just like stunned, and afterwards some of them will be like, I am so sad for him. That's so awful that people make him go through that. And that looks horrible. And like all of a sudden there's all this empathy that really changes how they approach other kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just being able to see it that different perspective. And then kids are great ambassadors. I mean, because my son is very confident in his um, neurodiversity and Tourette's, he talks about it all the time with people. And he's very much like, that's just my tick. It's like a hiccup, only it's my brain doing it. Just like, you just ignore it. If you pay attention to it, it's going to get worse. So if you don't like it, shut up. <laughs> and, you know, he's just very, he's 13. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but then other kids hear that, and then they go, and I hear from other parents about how they're standing up for other kids at school or at other activities they're in um, because they heard about it from him and they saw him. That's amazing. You've shared with me previously that you have a silent disability. Can you explain what that means both generally and how that pertains to like your experience living with a silent disability? Sure. So a silent disability is a disability you can't see. 
Um, neurodiversity is a great example. I mean, people, the first time that I remember we were at a church group, my son was much beloved by the grown-ups because he's extremely sweet and caring. And like one time we looked outside, it was raining, and he was holding his coat over a couple of the girls who were playing outside so that they could keep playing without getting wet. And this is when he was like six, five or six. And so that's just his personality. He's extremely sweet. And um, one of the people at church, I mentioned something about Charlie having Tourette's. And, some, and they were like, really, Charlie? He's such a great kid. And I was like, I'll just wait. It's going to hit in a second. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. That came out completely wrong. And yeah, it did. Um, but thankfully, people, if I just like don't say a word, people usually realize that they just put their foot in their mouth. Mm -hmm. um, and people do it all the time. Because, you know, you can't tell from the outside that someone has a different brain wiring or that they have MS or that they have, you know, any number of other disabilities that aren't visible. And so then people don't make accommodations for it. And because, of, you know, people are like, oh, if someone's in a wheelchair, you know what you need to do, right? But if someone is developmentally different, then what you get instead, like with my kids, was, you know, what's wrong with your kid? Why is he acting like that? And I'm like, why would you talk to someone like that? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? Um, so that's, and you know, as adults, you just get people staring or, you know, whatever, if they do notice you doing something different because there's no label on you that says, hi, I have this disability, so I can't open the door, right? So they just look at you like you're crazy. Um, in my case, my uh, invisible disability is that about 10 years ago, I had a vertebral artery dissection and multiple strokes. Um, so I had multiple cerebellar strokes, which put me in this very rare category, one in 100,000. Um, so not something that people know much about. So the closest I can ever get is like, you know that test they do on the side of the road for whether or not you're drunk? So I'd fail that, and, which is not a great way to explain what your disability is. Um, but you know, your cerebellum is responsible for balance and coordination, which means that like if I'm not looking at my arm, if it's behind me like this, I can't tell that it's there. I know cognitively it's there, but I can't sense that it's there. Um, if there's something crawling on me, I don't know where exactly it is. I've gotten a lot better and I've learned a lot of strategies um, because it's been 10 years and I'm not stupid. But, you know, I still have a lot of disability related to that. Um, whether it's certain doors I just cannot open or I have to use two hands to, when it's the button that you push and then the, it's so maddening. And I'm like, why do they put doors like this on things? <laughs> and so, you know, I have to like put everything down and use two hands and get my stuff. Um, I can't like bend down at the grocery store and get stuff off the bottom shelf without falling. And so I have to sit down on my butt on the floor at the grocery store. Like just all of these different little things that just change the way I do things that at first was really, really hard. And now it's so normal that I don't notice it. But then I have these moments where I realize like, oh, that would have been like a million times easier if I could just like do the thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one thing that my therapist and I have talked about is like, I actually qualify for a service dog. And I go back and forth and like, you know, I've been doing everything without a dog, but wouldn't it be handy if like a dog could reach things for me and I could just be like, get that and they get it for me, right? Yeah. But then I'm like, everyone's seen me going around looking fine. What are people going to think when here's this perfectly fine looking woman walking around with a service dog, which mine would actually be a balance dog. And so they have to be larger and they have a special harness so that if I get tippy, I can hold on to them, which again, like I look fine. I'm just walking around and then I have a dog with a weird harness on it. Like what's wrong with me, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's weird thinking about kind of that dual identity of cognitively I'm fine. And also I get insanely tired where my brain starts struggling. So even just like after working on a review all afternoon, 
when I go home tonight, I know that I won't be able to do a lot of things that I could do this morning. Because with that brain fatigue, it's a whole different ballgame. It's not like this, it's not the kind of fatigue you can push through, right? I'm a doctor. I worked 30 plus hour shifts and, you know, I kept going. This isn't the kind of thing you need going through. You know, if I can't get a button undone, I can't get a button undone. There's nothing I can do about it. You know, so it's really weird, like looking fine, looking normal, being able to do things and simultaneously not being able to do things. Like my kids are super used to being my guide dog, basically, where, you know, if I'm, when I'm, anytime we're someplace where I might fall, I always have a kid next to me so that I don't fall. And that's just like normal. They're used to it. They grew up that way. But it's not normal, right? Mm-hmm. And so if I find myself in a, in a strange situation, like I was at a leadership conference that was up in the mountains, which I grew up here. I do things in mountains all the time, except I don't anymore. So it seemed normal until I got there and I was like, well, crap, I can't walk over there. Like, that's an irregular surface. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I had to ask some random person I didn't know. I was like, hey, I know I look normal and all, but um, I can't get up that. Can I hang on to you? And thankfully, I mean, it was all for people who were leaders and wanted to be leaders. And so they all knew, like, how to respond appropriately. (laughs) Uh, But it was still, like, you know, it was awkward. Mm -hmm. And so it's like this constant, how much do I look normal? And how much do I just be myself? Um, I love where I live because it's a lot of just what I call normal people. You know, I live in a in an area more urban area. My daughter's school is eighty percent free and reduced lunch, um, so it means that like I can go to the grocery store and people aren't there looking all dressed up. You know, I can go ahead and if I have a really wide base gate, I don't fall and it's a lot easier for me, but I don't look normal. So I spend most of my time with a narrow based gate, but that's more exhausting. But hey, I can go to my grocery store and nobody cares how I'm walking because they're there in their pajamas or they're there, you know, they're homeless, they're, you know, there's all these different situations and nobody cares. Like we all accept each other. So I can go ahead and walk around with my wide base gate and nobody looks at me like, what's wrong with her? Mm -hmm. How have you felt not very supported by your physicians throughout this, um, you know, disability that you've gotten? Um, And then conversely, how have you felt supported by your physicians? Well, see, my current PCP is awesome, Mm -hmm. but I will say she's a nurse practitioner. Okay. Um, And because she treats me like a normal person, Mm -hmm. which means that when something is really lousy, she says, wow, that sounds really hard. I'm like, thank you. Like, nobody argued with me. I didn't have to prove anything. Oftentimes with physicians, I felt like I have to prove. You know, I have to prove that I'm disabled enough or prove that I'm not disabled enough because I have to walk this fine line of, like, I'm disabled enough that, like, I have struggles, but I'm also not disabled enough where I have to, like, not work or I have to not, you know, all these other So trying to walk that fine line of proving that I'm both okay and not okay. We don't have a place in our society for that. Either you're completely disabled or you're completely capable. There's not this like middle ground. Mm-hmm. But this middle ground is where my family lives. I mean, my, my husband has significant disability because of his executive functioning challenges to the point that like he legally qualifies for respite care. But he's my husband. We have kids together. You know, we have like a, a seemingly outwardly normal life. So how, how do you reconcile that? Right? right. So, you know, people can't expect him to do certain things because he has a very significant disability. And at the same time, they can't treat him like he has a very significant disability the way they might think of treating someone with an IQ of 70. But his functional IQ, is it functional IQ? I can't remember what, but his score for how he's able to do functionally because of his IQ functioning is under 70, even though his IQ is well over 100. 
so how do you treat someone like that? And people get really confused, right? Like, do we treat him like he's smart? Do we treat him like he's stupid? Because that's all we really have in our society, mm-hmm. right? And doctors really struggle with that because they have to treat him like he's intelligent because he is, and like he has a caregiver, which is me. And like everything in all his records said that they have to communicate with me because he can't schedule appointments and follow up with them. He absolutely cannot do paperwork. Um, and so it, we had a lot of troubles for a really long time finding providers and um, clinicians who are willing to work with me because, you know, he's an adult and he's intelligent, so he should do everything. But then that put him in a situation where he wasn't getting the care he needed because he can't. Mm-hmm. And so trying to find that, that place where it doesn't matter how, how someone is, you treat them all the same, which is you treat them like as, in, as a, a cognizant human being, you talk to them like a person, and you provide the support or allow them to get the support that they need. And you probably see that with kids all the time, is that people treat kids like they're stupid, and they're not. Mm-hmm. They are smart, and they're paying attention, and they just don't have the control, right? But when you start treating kids like people, and, you know, I can explain basically any medical concept to children, and people often are like, how do you, you know, how do you teach a pre-pre-med kid class for kids? And I'm like, well, because kids understand all this, right? Mm-hmm. So I can explain all this medical stuff to someone with a low IQ or with communication difficulties or who are children. And of course, I might change how I explain it, but you know, the way doctors talk to most patients doesn't work. The patients may pretend like they understand because they don't want to feel stupid, but in reality, they have no clue. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just putting on a show. Do you like to say silent disability or invisible disability? Either one. I mean, okay. I've gotten used to invisible disability, okay. but you can also say silent. silent. Okay. I think I've often used invisible because you can't see it. Right. And silent would imply that it's... You can't hear it. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> but again, it's a literal, spend my life with people who are autistic. Uh, yes, so. yes, yes. How has your experience, personal experience with an invisible disability shaped the way that you practice medicine? I think, I, for one thing, I assume everyone has an invisible disability unless proven otherwise. Um, I think in our society, we assume everyone is fine and, and until proven otherwise, right? Um, but when you look at the statistics on how many people have trauma history, which I believe is also an invisible disability, um, that's a huge number of people. When you add in all the people with MS, all the people who are neurodivergent, all the people who've had strokes, all the people who you know, have severe life-altering other things, you know, chronic pain, arthritis, um, severe migraines, like the list goes on and on and on and on, right? And so I just start by assuming the person in front of me has a reason why things are hard for them. And so when I'm working with them, if they're not doing something, it's not because they're non-compliant or what, it's because it's hard for them. So why is it hard for them? And sometimes it's the social determinants of health, you know, not having access. Um, and a lot of times it's because of education um, but a lot of times it's a lot of these other things too, right? It's because of trauma. It's because their brains are wired differently than mine. It's because of some other thing that's keeping them from being able to do what they would otherwise be doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I see someone with multiple diagnoses, diabetes and hypertension and dyslipidemia and obesity and so forth, there's a reason for that. Nobody chooses to have that many problems, right? And it's probably a combination of a lot of different things, but part of it's probably going to be something like trauma. It could be something like neurodiversity. Um, one of the things that bugs me no end is nobody knows that people who are neurodiverse have much higher rates of heart disease, of gastrointestinal problems, of all these other medical issues. Um, and when I did contact the AFP, it was like, 
can I can do an article about this? And I'm like, well, it doesn't meet our um, editorial goals. And I was like, okay, got it. <laughs> I see. Um, because that's 2% of the population just with autism. Once you add in ADHD and Tourette's and all these other neurodiversities, you know, that's a, that's a lot more people than have some of these other conditions they have articles about. Right. And when you look at the articles about ADHD or autism, it focuses on the mental health aspects or on the classic, what you imagine people are like. It, uh, they don't talk about, oh, here's all these other things that can be going on. Right. And the thing about people as whole people, which is the family medicine background, right, mm-hmm. um, is the whole picture of it's not just the one diagnosis. It's how their whole body is different, right, mm-hmm. and how it affects the whole family, which is why I went to family medicine. I originally was going to go, and, well, at the beginning of med school, I said I wanted to be a pediatrician. As soon as I started my rotations, I was like, oh, I can't do this because the kids aren't the problem. The parents are the problem. But then as I started caring for parents, I realized, like, oh, no, the parents aren't the problem. Society's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and once I was able, in order to help the kids, I had to help the parents. In order to help the parents, I had to make a difference in how they operated in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I, that holistic approach to helping children became really important to me. You mentioned that you know, adults with autism are rarely diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, you know, with other, like ADHD and Tourette's and other, you know, neurodevelopmental diseases, do you think that those are underdiagnosed? Or do you think so? We know they are. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the CDC comes out with um, statistics of the predicted number of something compared to the diagnosed number of something. So the the first one they ever came out with adults with autism was in 2020, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of sad. It took them that long. (laughs) But at least they did it. Yeah. So that was one of the good things that happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so hugely, hugely underdiagnosed. Okay. Um, because the only people who tend to get diagnosed are those with enough privilege to get diagnosed. Right. right? Or who are so severe. But even those who are so severe, you know, if um, there's a lot of, you hear about, like, people of color and the police. Well, mm-hmm. look at people of color and the police who are, when the people of color are autistic. Mm-hmm. And it's terrible yeah. how they get treated. Because, of course, they're going to be reacting in a, different ways because they have autism, right? Um, A lot of people who have ADHD end up doing things like self-medicating with drugs, often stimulants, which they could get legally if they were diagnosed, right? Mm -hmm. And would prevent them from ever having the problems that they have if they've been able to get treated with the gold standard treatment at a young enough age. Mm -hmm. Um, And so instead, people end up in the um, judicial system somewhere. And if you look in the prison system, a large number of people have undiagnosed problems, that if they'd been diagnosed as children and gotten the help they needed, they wouldn't be where they are now. Bring people like my husband, I mean, look at my husband and my kids, he was diagnosed at 40. If he'd been diagnosed as a young child like my kids were, like, he'd be so much further along compared to where he is. And instead, we're having to kind of pick up the pieces Mm -hmm. of this lost life, right? Mm -hmm. And he has me to help him. Most people don't have that. Right. And, you know, without that, where would he be? Lastly, what advice do you have for future physicians who strive to promote health equity and compassion in their future practices? Boy, there's a big, that's a big question. Why do people want to is the first step, right? Because mm-hmm. some people don't even care. They don't even want to. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to do them any good. Right. Um, you know, getting to know lots of different people, learning to communicate well with lots of different people is really important. Um, I, the Hi-Ho Kids channel actually is one I really recommend because, I mean, they have some, like, they try their grandparents' favorite food or whatever. Um, but the ones where they meet people from a lot of different backgrounds, I think is really important. Um, I think the last statistic I saw is that in medical school, I think it was 
5% of medical students come from the lowest uh, income quintile, and 95, or I'm sorry, 75% come from the top quintile. So what that means is people don't have a grasp on reality, mm -hmm. you know, what it's like. I, I came from the 5% end, and to me that's just normal. Like I went to the most diverse high school in the state. There were over 70 languages in my high school. And so for me, those experiences are normal, right? But if someone's been living in a comfortable bubble their whole lives, they're going to have to have a way of getting out of it because it's so different to live and experience something. You know, I thought that I was very understanding and compassionate, and then I needed to go on SNAP, which is food stamps, after my strokes. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. And what it's like going to a food bank, I had no idea. You know, being on the volunteer side of it is lovely and all, but it's totally different than having to wait in line for hours just to get food, and then you get home and it's rotten. Like, that sucks, right? And actually experiencing some of these things that people will never get to experience is the best way of learning about them. But if you can't, try to live through someone else's experience as much as you can. Um, and then also I'd say nonviolent communication is really helpful. So Marshall Rosenberg, I think, is who wrote it. Um, there's a book on Audible called Nonviolent Communication. And so useful because it's removing all judgment from how we speak and just saying the facts of a situation. And it's really hard for people to do. You know, it's, we, we naturally judge everything. And especially as clinicians, it's woven into our language, it's woven into our practice. And if we can remove that, then we can be much better clinicians and also do a better job with equity and with reaching all people.